Today we're going to start a new sermon series, a new study uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's going to take us, this first part of it is going to take us up through um, Easter, I think. And um, the focus that we're really going to be focusing on for the next several weeks is, is unity and how we're united to each other in Christ. Uh, that's the theme of the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians. And, and today what I want to do is, is just dig a little bit into uh, the theme of the book to, to get the first verses in front of us and to read those and to see what's going on. And one of the things that we're going to see is that there is, behind Paul's words to the Corinthians, this urgency. This, there is, he is driven in this letter, that there is desperation in the way that he's engaging with them. And what we're going to do is we're going to strive to understand what is driving him. What is it that is behind him that is so urgent that he's writing this letter and he's writing it in the way that he does. And out of the gate, in the verses we're going to read today, you're going to see it. You're going to see this desperation. And it raises the question that I want to put before us this morning of, is there, is there fight in you? Are you a person who has a conviction that will get you up and move you towards something for the sake of principle, for the sake of truth, for the sake of rightness? Have you ever been in a fight? Have you ever been beaten up? Robbie Dupree. I changed these names to protect the innocent (laughs) because of the worldwide interweb. Robbie Dupree was the stuff of lore in the town I grew up in. I was in first grade when his legend rose. He was two years older than me, third grader, and he was a wild kid, and he was causing all kinds of havoc in his third grade class, the first grader is hearing through his first grade ears. And the principal comes to calm him down, And Robbie takes a yardstick and he breaks it and he stabs the principal in the gut with this yardstick. And then Robbie goes away. And we don't see him anymore. And we have this story and we're learning words like juvie. And and Robbie's gone. But his legend has been cemented in our little school, in our little town, to the point where he is a household name. Everybody knows the legend of Robbie. Fast forward, it's seventh grade, and the rumors in junior high are that Robbie is back. And whatever happened in the intervening years, he's now in my grade, and not two years older than me. (laughs) And I'm walking down the hall, He's been back for maybe a week. And I'm walking down the hall and I see him and he's standing next to a kid that lived just down the road from me. I lived out in the country in Indiana. My neighbor was half mile down the road and this was a guy that I, I considered a friend. He's standing there next to Robbie. They both look at me. My friend leans over and whispers something to Robbie. like He just kind of does one of these and says something. And Robbie, just as casually as can be, just saunters right over to me and just lays me out. Just lays me out. One hit, and I'm on the ground. And I'm stunned. And tears are welling up in my eyes and confusion and this sense, everything's rushing in, this betrayal. Like, did this 
just happen? And did my friend in, instigate this? And, and after all these years, Robbie's very next act of public violence is on me, you know? This is the confusion and the bewildering moment that I'm, I'm having. And I want to tell you that these kinds of memories just crystallize themselves in your mind. That you, you know, I remember details about this. I remember sitting in the principal's office. I remember feeling nervous like I was somehow in trouble and, and being afraid that my mom would be upset with me for being in the principal's office. I remember struggling with guilt But the thing that really kind of stuck with me the most was thinking through why was there no fight in me? There there was none. There was no instinct to hit him back. There was no instinct to even the score. It was just I went down and I felt like a wimp and I thought, am I ever going to be tough? Am I ever going to be tough like Robbie? Can I ever be tough like Robbie without becoming mean like, like Robbie? Is there fight in me about anything? Is there fight in you about anything? When Paul lands at Corinth for the first time, when he just shows up in Corinth, the story where he's coming into this city is one, it's just a sad story. He is beat up when he gets there. He's been on a second missionary journey. He's been traveling around from one town to the other. He's been preaching the gospel. He's been seeing people come to Christ, but he's also been experiencing uh, this opposition, one after another after another, where he's being beaten, he's being arrested, he's being imprisoned, he's being brought on trial He's being pursued by people. He's having threats against his life. He's having to escape cities under cover of darkness. He's traveling with his, with his brothers in the Lord, Timothy and Silas, and they plant this church in Berea, and it comes time for Paul to go to Corinth to take the gospel there, and the church in Berea kind of needs him to stay back, and so Timothy and Silas stay. Their resources are depleted, and so Paul washes up on the shore of Corinth alone, without money, beaten up, and in what is now the most daunting and largest city that he's ever been to for the sake of bringing the gospel. If you're traveling with him, how are you holding up? Every city's new, there's no familiarity. Just by the time you start to get familiar with a place, you move on to the next one. And you're received very sketchily by the people there that you're, you're bringing trouble upon yourself and you're seeing a few people come to embrace Christ and then you're being driven and driven and driven to the next and to the next and to the next. At what point do you say, this isn't really working out. This isn't worth what it's costing us. Corinth itself was a really hard place. Listen, I'm gonna tell you, if you're a person who likes structure, we're gonna weave around for a little bit, but I promise it's coming together. I need to give you some stuff, okay? Corinth was a city that was hard to proclaim Christ, and do you know why? Because it was just like Nashville. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Corinth was a city with a pulse. 
There was lots about it to love. It was energetic. It was eclectic. It was vibey, if there was such a thing at the time. It was cosmopolitan. People had come from all over. We have a, a map to put up here. Hey, Matt, can we put the map up of Corinth? You see it there in the box. It's the little dot that's next to the box. It's a port city. It's a hub. If you're trying to get from anywhere on the, on the uh, what would that be, the western side of Achaia or from the eastern side in Asia, you're kind of going through Corinth or you're taking the long way around. Corinth was a place where people from all over the world would gather, very cosmopolitan. It wasn't the kind of city where you would meet a lot of people who would say, I'm born and raised in Corinth, but you'd meet tons of people who would say, I came to Corinth from another part of the world, which is just like Nashville. It was a sensual city. If something felt right, it wasn't wrong. There was this hill that towered over the city, and on this hill was a temple to Aphrodite, and it had a thousand temple prostitutes, and they describe it like this, that as the sun would set on the city, the temple prostitutes would make their way down and just cover the city. What an image. And on so many levels, when the sun sets on Nashville, it's like that. Sports. There were the Olympics. And then the next largest games that were going on in the Greek and Roman world were held in Corinth. And they loved their sports. They loved their athletes. Like Nashville. It was an entertainment hub. And it was eclectic in the sense that people were coming from all over the world with their accents and their philosophies and their religions and their foods and their cultures and their art and their music. There was also a temple to the Greek god Apollo who was the god of music and poetry and the ideal male specimen. He was the first rock star, the Greek god Apollo in skinny jeans. This was a part of it. Music and art and culture mattered. Just like Nashville. Very individualistic. It was a city of self-made people. This place, not just 100 years earlier, had been leveled by the Greeks, vowing to keep it out of the hands of Rome. And Julius Caesar kind of took over everything. And there was a Roman soldier who went to Corinth. And the story is that he built this city from the ground up. He gave it new life. And it was a story people were proud to tell. We built this city. We resurrected. And it's flourishing. And there's, it's wealthy. It's a story. It's a city made of stories of people who have built her. And I imagine that many had the sense that as they lived and as they moved, they were somehow writing the story of Corinth. Is that not like Nashville? that we think about our place in this city and we wonder, am I contributing to the writing of the story of this city? Because this city welcomes that. And that's not a bad thing. But that's part of how this city is made. Have you ever stopped to think about how you engage this city? Do you feed off of it? Are you a consumer? Are you somebody who's saying, give me everything you've got? Are you somebody who yields to the city? Are you somebody who's shaping it? Is there any fight in you when you think about yourself as a citizen in this city? What you contend for as a citizen of this city? 
To this city, Corinth, comes this apostle who is weak and he's beaten down and he stays in Corinth and he arrives there, no money, no friends, no nothing and he starts to work as a tent maker. He's a laborer and he's beginning to pray for the Lord to plant the seeds of the gospel and he meets Priscilla and Aquila, two displaced Jews who are there who hear the gospel and believe and together they start working and before long, people are coming to know Christ, the Lord is moving in this city and the church is growing And people's lives are being changed by the power of the gospel. They're understanding their brokenness, their need for redemption, their need to be made right with the one who made them for relationship with himself. And it's starting to happen. And the time comes for Paul to move on to the next city. And he goes on to Ephesus, and the church there continues to grow. When we get to this letter that we call 1 Corinthians, it's not Paul's first letter Um, to the Corinthian church. We know this because in 1 Corinthians 5, he mentions another letter that he had written. It was a very strong letter because there was fight in him. There was something desperate. He was hearing about what was going on in this church that he had labored against all odds to see the Lord build, and the Lord did. And now he's hearing reports from afar, a year later, two years later, that there's a problem, that there's a problem in the church, and the problem is that they are being fractured, that they are being divided. The religious philosophies and ideas, the things that dwell inside the human heart that are just corrupt and sinister, they are, to Paul, casually sauntering over to the church in Corinth with a clenched fist getting ready to rain down blows. And Paul knows, I have some things I need to say. I need to fight. I need to fight for Corinth. And so here's what he says. This is 1 Corinthians 1. I'm gonna read verses 10 through 17. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's how he starts, is he's talking to the church and he's saying, you all are divided, and you're divided by the leaders that you're allying yourselves with. You're being divided by your affiliations with your favorite Leaders, your favorite pastors, your favorite people that are out in front leading, you're saying, I'm with him, I'm with him. And Paul's saying, no, no, you're with Christ. In a philosophical city, it would have been a common thing for people to say, you know, here's where I'm leaning these days. I'm I'm really getting into this philosophy over here. Or, you know, I read this book and I'm really into that right now and I really think, and you know, it attracts, doesn't it? Other people who are saying, really, I am too. And we wanna be together and we wanna talk. And we still do this. We do this all the time. We do this to find ourselves on the map. Where am I? 
culturally? Where am I as I engage with people? We do this to polarize, and we do it to attract. You know what I'm talking about? Let me just demonstrate it. We'll do a low-stakes game of polarizing and attracting, okay? Beekner, Dillard, Lewis, and Barry speak to my soul. And for those of you who need first names, why do you need those first names? Some of you know exactly who I'm talking about. Some of you are polarized right now. Some of you are right there with me. I'm a Mac, and I'm glad not to be a PC anymore. How about this? The Coen brothers are the best filmmakers going. Hands down. Show of hands. This is group participation. Who in the last 10 days bought Barton Hollow? Hands up. Come on, hi. This is important. This is culture. Barton Hollow, Nashville, we love the Civil Wars. And for good reason, the Civil Wars are great. I thought they were good. On Leno, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I've heard so much and seen so much about the Civil Wars this week. We love them. How about this? Oh, this might be polarizing. Coldplay and Arcade Fire are lost on me. I don't get it. I've tried. They're on my playlist, and I don't get it. <laughs> Reading Dickens is about as much fun to me as getting my teeth cleaned. <laughs> How about this? On the radio station preset buttons in my car, on the far left is NPR, and on the far right is Rush Limbaugh. <clears throat> now what's happening is you're thinking, wait, wait, which is he? Which is he? And what I am is I am politically ambiguous to you, which is making some of you very suspicious right now. Polarizing, attracting, some of you are like, yeah. The ending to Lost didn't bother me all that much. I kind of liked it. Okay, this is the last one. This is, I saved the most polarizing for the end. I questioned Paul McCartney's ability to make good art by himself. <laughs> Think about it. By himself. It's polarizing. It's attracting. It's carving up the room. I'm alienating some. I'm attracting others. It's small stakes. In Corinth, the believers, though, were beginning to differentiate over things that were Ultimate, not small stakes, but big stakes. They were beginning to say of their faith that they were affiliating themselves and that that what they were allied to was a leader, was a person. And there is no person that can sustain a community. And you may say some of them, yeah, but some of them were saying that they followed Christ. But let's get into that a little bit. There were four categories that Paul mentions. There were some who said, I follow Paul. These are the ones who like the guy who planted the church. And then there were some who said, I like Apollos. Apollos was the next pastor to come in. Apollos was said to be a man who was very eloquent. And these were the people who said that the planning guy was okay, but the next guy, he was eloquent, and I liked him a lot better. And then there was, I follow Cephas. This is the apostle Peter. And 
it's questionable whether Peter actually ever went to Corinth or not, but maybe what we're getting here is that they hear about Peter's involvement and his missteps from time to time in being rigid in his Judaism. And they're saying, Peter really towed the line. You guys seem kind of loose, you Greeks, you Romans. You seem kind of loose, but Peter, he was all about it. These are the folks who critique their pastors against the people that they're reading. You know? These are the guys where you say, my pastor's okay, but I'm really a Tim Keller guy or a John Piper guy or an R.C. Sproul guy or an N.T. Wright guy. The list goes on and on and on. But these are the people who say, I like my pastor, but really I ally myself with this other person out out there. That's kind of where I am. And then the I follow Christ. This, you know these people. Maybe some of you are these people. These are the people who say, I don't really follow Paul or Apollos. I just, I just, I'm just a Christian. I just follow Jesus. I just believe the Bible. You know, that's what I do. But underneath that is this distancing yourself from other people as being somehow kind of superior. Because if you hear what you're saying, I don't follow men. I just follow Christ, I'm just, I'm just a Christian, that in that can be this kind of self-righteous sort of, I'm doing this right here. Abraham Piper said this, he said, self-applying the term Jesus follower for accuracy or lexical variety is good. Doing it to distance yourself from other Christians is cowardly. Hmm. The goal of this perhaps, is anti-authority. I don't need anybody to lead me. I just follow Christ. I don't need authority in my life. I just follow Christ. And Paul is objecting to this, and he's speaking into this, and he's saying, your eyes are not on Christ. Your eyes are on people, and you're looking to leaders to do things, and no leader is strong enough, or wise enough, or capable enough, or for that matter, called to sustain your community on his own. No one person is capable of doing that for everybody else. They're called to be in this messy, broken community. And Paul says, you weren't baptized into my name. I didn't die on a cross for your sins. Don't affiliate yourself with me. You're not united by me. You're united by Christ, by Christ. No one else took their sins to God and paid for them in full. No one was baptized into Paul's name. It's a big problem because people are beginning to find their assurance and their security in trusting in their own decision making really is ultimately what it gets to is that I've chosen the right category to put myself in. Nobody who said I follow Apollos was secretly thinking but I kind of wish I followed Paul. They followed Apollos because they thought they were right to follow Apollos and to ally themselves there. If you're trusting in yourself for your own righteousness, if you're trusting in your own decisions for your own righteousness, you're not only missing the point of the work of Christ, but you're actually denying your need for the work of Christ. You're saying, I can rightly decide my way into righteousness. And if that's the case, the cross was a colossal waste of time and a big error in calculation on God's part. You need Christ because you are just that broken. You need to be restored. This is a community of people who are joined to each other by the redeeming work of Christ on their behalf, and they're bound to each other in this. 
Paul is saying, stop fracturing out. Be one, be together, be a community who understands that Christ is the head of the table at which you sit. So who do you follow? That's the big question, one of them. I wanna ask one more question before we head to the Lord's table of this text because it's important for us to say, who do you follow? What gives you your sense of identity? But then there's another side of this coin, getting back to the question of, is there any fight in you? And that is, what is Paul fighting about? He speaks for himself. He says, was Paul crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? He's not bringing Apollos' name in. He's not bringing Peter's name in. He's talking about himself. And what he's doing is he's standing out in front of these people who are saying, I follow Paul, and he's saying, don't you follow me like that. Don't you do that. Don't you follow me like that. I'm not worthy of being followed by you in this way. You're looking to me for your identity, for your worth, for your salvation, for your community, and I'm not the one who's called to give that to you. Christ is. And the question that I want to ask you is not just who do you follow, but who do you beckon to follow you? And what do you want from your followers? What do you want from them? Is there fight in you? To say, when people fawn all over you and think you're the greatest thing ever, to say, I am not, and don't respond to me in that way. Or do you in your heart just take it and take it and take it? Parents, do you need your children to persuade you that you are a godly and good parent? Or is that something between you and the Lord? Artists, do you need fans to tell you that you have a calling that is worth something? Or is that between you and the Lord? Communities, do you need people responding to you in particular ways in order for you to feel that you are valuable in that community? Or is that between you and the Lord? Do you see what I'm asking? It's not just who you follow, but it's who follows you and how you want them to follow you. There is fight in Paul to go to people who are saying, but Paul, we follow you. And he says, not in this way, don't you do it. Don't you do it. Follow Christ. Follow Christ. We're coming to the Lord's table. And one of the questions that this table gives us is the question of what unites Christians. It's not the color of our skin. It's not the city in which we live. It's not our favorite songs, it's Christ. It's not a leader, it's not a pastor, it's not a celebrity, it's not a book, it's Christ. And it's not that he unites us by the potential of what he might one day do, which is why we do a lot of the following that we do, the potential of if I follow, awesome things may happen. We follow Christ and we're united in Christ by what he's already done, that he's offered himself up for us, that he's laid down his life, that he's died in our place, that he's risen from the grave, that he's given us his righteousness, that he's called us his own. This table beckons us to come before the Lord in a posture of humility, to understand this is not Midtown's table. This is not the Christian church in Nashville's table. This is the Lord's table. He's the one at the head of this meal. And we come to this table and we gather around it on our knees 
together and we serve each other together as a way of saying what we are united by is what these elements represent, that we're united by the broken body and the shed blood of Christ who has made us clean. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's also an instruction to your heart and to mine, a warning to say, what do you follow? And what do you need following you? This table is a beautiful thing because we live in a culture where we just do not kneel. We don't posture ourselves humbly. We don't take a reverent position. But when we come to this table, we do. And it's before the Lord. And it's very public, but it's also very private for us. Let me pray for us. Father, in your word, you give us this table not just theoretically, but you, the first time you gathered your disciples together around a table, just as you were getting ready to go to the cross, and you offered them the bread. On the night you were betrayed, you took bread, and when you had given thanks, you broke it. And you said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup. And you said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And then by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul would later write, for whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Father, would you remind us that this is only for a while that we come to this table, that there will come a day when this table will be obsolete, it will be replaced by the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will not come to it in this way anymore. In the meantime, Father, I pray that as we come, that you would give us a hunger, that you would give us an urgency to be with you and that you would put fight in us, uh, that we would be people who would want to contend for your place as Lord over all in our lives. Father, we thank you for this time together. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray, and for your glory that we come to this table. Amen and amen.